Most of what you'll see in Europe was built long before the age of wheelchairs and walkers. Yet today, more and more intrepid travelers with limited mobility are venturing through the castles, cafes, and cantinas of the continent. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Ken Plattner took my guidebook information and fine-tuned it to address the needs of wheelchair users and slow walkers. Our book, Easy Access Europe, is a tool for experiencing all that Europe has to offer despite disabilities. And Jamie Jensen is back to help us plan another great American road trip, this time in my own neighborhood, the Pacific Northwest. We're ready to travel in style with confidence and enthusiasm. It's why we're here on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll open with your calls and emails right after this. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. More and more intrepid travelers with limited mobility are venturing through the castles, cafes, and cantinas of the continent. Ken Plattner took my guidebook information and fine-tuned it to address the needs of wheelchair travelers and slow walkers. Our book, Easy Access Europe, is a tool for experiencing all that Europe has to offer despite disabilities. It's coming up as we travel with Rick Steves. And later this hour, the allure of Americans' open road takes us around the Pacific Northwest. Jamie Jensen, author of Road Trip USA, returns for more conversation and calls about destinations closer to my home base near Seattle. Travel is an important part of the lifelong learning process, and that's what we're about at Travel with Rick Steves. Let's get started and see where your travel dreams are taking you. Call us at 877-333-RICK or pop me an email at radio at ricksteves.com. You're traveling with Rick Steves. Norman emailed us from Pleasant Hill in California. His comment is, I have used your travel books on four trips to Europe and have been reading them since 1996. You do not seem to be looking for new back doors. The same places are in your guides year after year. What's going on? Any plans for finding new places to see and new things to do? Norman, you've hit it on the nail. I wish there was six of me and I'd be finding new places, but I've got guidebooks now for every country in Western Europe, and I have to spend all the time my wife lets me get away from the family just uh, making sure I'm up to date on the existing places that I cover. I wish I could uh, have more time to explore new places, but that's a good thing for you to do. I'm satisfied that I've found enough to keep most people busy, but I'm very, very aware of the fact that I've just scratched the surface, and if you really want to get off the beaten path, you're going to probably have to go beyond the places I've covered in my guidebooks. For me, the bottom line is making sure the information I've got is right up to date. I would remind you that at our ricksteves.com website, there is a graffiti wall where travelers are sharing all of their discoveries, and there's many great places I find on there that I don't have time to go visit, but they sound just wonderful, and this is really in the spirit of going through the back door. Angela in Cerro Gordo, Illinois. Cerro Gordo, did I say it right? Cerro Gordo, yes. Cerro Gordo, thanks for your call. What are you thinking about? Well, uh, first I want to say that we've really enjoyed using your books when we've traveled in Europe and have found the website to be very helpful. But one thing that's got my curiosity is uh, because you're becoming well-known and a lot of travelers are using your resources, do you find that hotel or restaurant owners um, ever try to persuade you to feature their establishments by offering freebies or saying, you know, if you... um, try to get people to come to these places, then, you know, we'll give you this or we'll give you some kind of a discount. That's a good question. Of course, yeah. And one of my big challenges in my work is not to be, um, I wouldn't say corrupted, but have the wool pulled over my eyes by somebody who's giving me special treatment because they know what I'm doing as I research my guidebooks. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm, I got to say, I'm well beyond getting excited about getting a free meal or a free room or a free plane ticket. I've, I expect to spend money in my travels. And a lot of people go, wow, you get to write off everything and so on. And I, I don't get into a big discussion with them, but I could care less about that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a committed to my travel research and I'm not going to work really hard and then report on something uh, insincerely or, or inaccurately because somebody's whining and dining me. 
Uh, I'm, I'm amazed at a lot of people are so easy to corrupt that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm having said that I'm, I don't pay for my, my beds when I travel. I don't expect to pay for a restaurant in, or a hotel. Uh, hotels let me, let me stay for free. And, um, but I, but the funny thing is they, I mean, they want me to stay in their place and, and they compete to have me sleep in their place. It's almost a negative for a hotel to give me a room for free because then I learn all the little quirky things about that hotel. And I routinely drop hotels that let me stay in their place for free. So far from corrupting me, it gives me a, a little intimate insight to that hotel and I can report on it more honestly. Okay. I've got very good, it's an interesting challenge for me because over the years I've been doing this for 20 years and I make very good friends in Europe. I've been friends for several, two generations with a lot of families and when things go wrong in their hotel, it's tough for me but I've got to put my commitment to my readers ahead of my friendship with those people and I just have to tell them politely but straightly, you're not right for my readers anymore and I've got to drop you from the book. Okay. So, uh, but you know, what a challenge for me is, uh, the biggest challenge for me in a lot of ways is sorting through all the feedback I get on our graffiti wall. If you look at the ricksteves.com graffiti wall, you'll see in Florence there's three or four hotels that occur that are mentioned like 10 times as much as all the as many times as all the other hotels. Well, these are obviously orchestrated campaigns to try to get into the guidebooks. Oh, I and any hotel that's aggressive or restaurant that's aggressive or tour guide that's aggressive in Europe can quite easily become very high profile on all the different uh, chat boards for travelers in the United States. So we consumers of travel information have to be able to see through that. And I don't fault them for trying to do that. That's guerrilla marketing. And, you know, I, I guess it's fair. But as a consumer, I don't want to be so naive that I'm suckered in by that. Okay. One of the values of getting a good guidebook, whether it's my guidebook or somebody else's guidebook, is this is, a uh, you'd assume, research that's been made in person, and they're not being uh, conned by slick advertisements on the web or something like this. Okay. Uh, and I find if I'm, uh, a lot of times these days, I don't want the help of the tourist board. They'll meet me at the airport, and they'll drive me around, and they'll show me everything they want me to see, and they'll push the restaurants that have the big promotional budgets, and it's exactly the opposite of what I need to do with my research time. So I'm trying to, uh, you know, do a stealth trip uh, below the radar there, and uh, I'm just uh, like a traveler on the streets of Salzburg or Edinburgh or Oslo or whatever, learning how we Americans can stretch our dollar and have the, the best trip. And we appreciate that. Oh, great. I have a quick question. Sure. Uh, planning a trip for Paris, uh, Provence, Tuscany, and Rome uh, for 13 days next wow. summer. Is that too ambitious? Well, I would hope you're flying in a, into one end and out of the other end, like flying yes. into Paris and out of Rome, and then that's a very good two-week trip. Uh, you'd spend three days in Paris, and then you'd take the TGV down to Avignon. They've got a wonderful space-age new train station in, in Avignon, um, and uh, you've got uh, a chance to... Uh, uh, you know, enjoy the, the bullet train in, in France, and then you would spend three days in Provence, and then you'd head down to Tuscany, and uh, you might rent a car for four days, or, or stay in Siena, or uh, Assisi, or Florence, or San Gimignano, or any of those great towns in Tuscany or Umbria, and explore the countryside, and then you'd head on down to Rome and finish off with three days there before flying home. I, I think that sounds wonderful. Oh, great. Don't let people tell you that that's going too fast. Three days in Rome is three of the most exciting days you could spend anywhere in the world. Okay. And, of course, you could have seven days, but you don't. you got three. You live in the, in the country with the shortest vacations in the rich world, so you're going to have to deal with that. All right? Okay, thank you. Thanks for your call. Bye-bye. Bye now. I'm Rick Steves, and, you know, all of my career I've been interested in making Europe accessible. And for me, it's been accessible, mostly economic and culture shock and so on. But, of course, there's something very fundamental about accessibility, and that's physical accessibility. And there's a lot of people that just don't walk very well for various reasons, and a lot of times they get left out when it comes to the information available for travelers. And this has been on our mind for a long time, and a few years ago, a uh, man who's very dedicated to this issue approached me when I was giving a lecture in Denver and talked me into collaborating on a book designed for making Europe accessible. And a lot of people have talked to me about this before, but uh, this man really convinced me that he could run with this idea and make it happen. Uh, Ken Plattner has been a, a career as a chaplain in, in five hospitals. For 15 years, he was a director of a pastoral counseling center. He developed and supervised a number of satellite centers throughout Denver. He's been a professor teaching psychology and comparative religion. Five years ago, Ken semi-retired, and he's keeping very busy. Right now, he's on the Commission for People with Disability uh, for the mayor in Denver. And he co-authors with me a book called Easy Access Europe. And we have with us today Ken Plattner. Ken, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Ken, we have worked uh, for several years on this. You've worked on it. I've, I've written the book for people who uh, just can um, climb mountains and climb castles and so on. 
and you've taken my information and helped people who are not good walkers get around Europe. And there's sort of a, a business reality here. There's, there's a kind of a relatively small market, and we thought we want to do first-class information, but we need to do it on a smaller scale. So we limited our research to London, Paris, uh, Belgium, Amsterdam, and the Rhine River. Uh, and you were the man who was going over there and uh, learning about what it's like for accessibility in Europe. What did you learn? I learned that there were places over there that were incredibly accessible. And I also learned that they didn't have anything like we have in the United States, like the ADA, so the Americans for Disabilities Act. So everything that they're doing for people who have uh, limited mobility pretty much comes out of out of their heart and they're out of their desire to just uh, want to make it really be nice for the people who come to visit their countries. So uh, the place where I found it was most exciting was London. I, I couldn't believe, I mean, a, a person who uh, has limited mobility and just whispers help, there's almost like five people there saying, hey, how can I help you? What would be an example? Are you talking like on the, on the tube or at the oh, museum? Like or? the example, the best one I can think of is like the taxis. There, <laughs> there is not one taxi in London that isn't accessible. I mean, not just the black cabs, but all the cabs, even the little tiny ones, have, have ramps where a person can uh, actually put a wheelchair in the taxi cab. And there's no requirement for this? No government incentive to do this? I think there is some incentive, but they basically, uh, it, it's, uh, it is very common and uh, it is the expectation. And as of yet, they don't have the rules and regulations that we have in the states. But, you know, I think it's getting there. And so I think people are just gearing up. So you come home uh, not discouraged, but actually hopeful that if you can inspire people uh, with limited mobility to get out there and travel, uh, you're not going to be uh, getting them in the jam. They're going to be able to get around and manage okay? I guess I can say that it's, uh, it isn't like it is here because it's old. I mean, it's old world. And because historicity and preservation will always take precedence over uh, hmm. over accessibility. Well, that's one thing Europe is very um, committed to, is preserving their heritage. Yeah. And ironically, a lot of those buildings were built intentionally inaccessible. I mean, even the stairs are at different heights, so people will trip as they're coming up. And this is too small to get through with any armor on, much less a, a wheelchair. Exactly. And yet, you know, there are places that were bombed out during, you know, during the war. And so post-World War II, anything that's been built has all been very modern and is very accessible anywhere you go in Central Europe. So, You know, I was in Athens during the Special Olympics, and I was really inspired by uh, all of the work Athens had done to make things accessible. There's now actually an elevator at the side of the Acropolis going right up the rock face that wasn't there before, and it's exclusively for people who can't make the hike. Uh, we're finding more of that around Europe, are you? More and more all the time. Uh, we made a commitment that we would, we were going to go to each one of these cities that you outlined for us, and we were going to stay in that city until we found places where even a person who had the most severe disability uh, in a wheelchair could get around in that city, and there were places where they could stay. And so uh, it, it wasn't easy, but uh, we found the places, and they're all in the book. More from Ken Plattner on tackling mobility issues for disabled travelers, straight ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
It's Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, I'm talking with Ken Plattner about the challenges confronting travelers with limited mobility. Ken, in your travels, did you meet many people that are absolutely wheelchair-bound that you found were uh, encouraging you to do this, or were they saying, this is we're over our head and it's just nothing but frustrations? Well, the people that we met that were uh, disabled in, in wheelchairs, uh, I mean, they were so excited that we were doing this because, you know, there's not a lot of people really thinking very much about people who are disabled. It's, it's something that most of us don't want to think about very much, and you know. And so these folks were just exceedingly happy that we were doing this. But the more we did it, the more I realized that... Uh, that this book wasn't just for people who were in wheelchairs. I mean, you know, I don't have the energy I had, you know, at 58, I don't have the energy that I had when I was 25, and I walk a lot slower now, too. And so my energy is down. So I realized that I was as writing as much for myself as I, and researching as much for myself as I was for somebody who was in a scooter or a wheelchair. So let's take things kind of from the beginning. What should people know about flying to Europe? They're on a plane for nine or ten hours. Do the airlines accommodate people with special needs? This whole thing about the airlines is really something that if a person is going to travel to Europe, they really need to bone up on, uh, and there's some things that they can do to know about. And the first thing is you need to know about the Air Carrier Access Act of 1986. I mean, it, it covers all air travel on all U.S.-based airlines, and I mean, if you're not on a U.S.-based airline, you need to really be careful because they just don't have the kind of rules and regs over there that we have in the States. And so... Hmm. So you're better off on an American airline if you have these kind of concerns. A U.S.-based airline, yes. Interesting. You, and now, the the people I, I know who are uh, have mobility problems, boy, they know their rights, and uh, understandably, they, they're able to, to go to bat for, for their rights when they need to. I guess that's uh, sort of uh, the ball's in your court. you got to know what your rights are and then... And insist on them. I, that's exactly right. You have to be uh, somewhat assertive. Uh, you have to know your rights because education and awareness are truly the keys to getting good service. I mean, if you know what to expect and you know what people are supposed to be doing, well, then you can ask for it. Can you take a wheelchair onto an airplane without any security hassles? Um, there's some security hassles, but if you've done it a time or two, uh, you know, it's it's not... It's not anything that uh, is, is that difficult. There are, they but you have to know your aircraft, too. That's the other thing that's really important. I mean, most people never think anything about, well, what kind of a plane am I getting on? Well, if you're, if you're disabled, you know that the largest planes are the ones that ha- are required to have the most accessibility. So if you're going on a small plane, huh. they require very little accessibility. Ken, when people are dealing with their mobility concerns in an airline, tell me about the... Uh, the value of the complaint resolution officer? Well, if all else fails, you can always go to the CRO. Every airline has a CRO that's on duty 24 hours a day. So if you can't get the results that you need, you find the complaints resolution officer for that airline, and they have the authority, and they can, they can take care of whatever you need. So, uh, but is this like one person for the entire airline? Or one, no. One well, it's each one airline may have three people. Okay, so it's not at the airport. You're not going to find them at the airport. Yeah, you will. You'll find them at the gate. Really? Okay. They're not going to tell you that they exist, but, uh, but so they if, do. If you, if you say, who is the complaint resolution officer? I've got a concern. They will give you the appropriate person. Exactly. Very good advice. Now, when you get over to Europe, uh, we've got transportation concerns there. We've got to get in from the airport. We've got to get from Paris to London. We've got to hop on the train. We've got to, you know, how realistic is it that somebody can get around that way? It's like going anywhere. You're going to meet some people who are going to be very, very warm and friendly and helpful. And then you're going to meet other people who are just kind of insensitive and don't really even notice you. And so I think the key is to know your rights, to know what's available, to do your homework, to know how you go from here to there and what stations to avoid and what stations are more accessible and what do you mean what stations to avoid how would that imply well say you're in uh say you're in Paris uh there are certain stations in Paris that you know by train where you just don't want to be there in a wheelchair and you don't ever want to go in the metro with a wheelchair boy i know even from somebody who can who's a 
who's an athlete, you don't want to go to certain stations just because the walks are huge and time-consuming. In other stations, the walks are just across the track. Exactly. One little tip that way will save somebody, whether they're whether they walk well or not, lots yeah. of sweat. And also, just sort of heads-up travel. When I get off of a, a, at a subway stop, I want to. I look on the track for a map, and I want to know which exit I want to leave that subway station from. In considering where I want to go ultimately when I get up on uh, out in the air, and uh, I can save myself hundreds of yards of walking just by taking a left turn on the track instead of a right turn. Exactly right, and a lot of that just comes from just doing your homework. Now, Ken, in your travels, did you find hotels are? How do you? How would somebody with a concern about mobility uh, sort through all the hotels and and? Uh, what does that does that mean? You're going to spend a lot more money. Does it mean you're going to have to stay in a high-rise American-style hotel, or can you get some old-world charm and still have accessibility? There are some places that are old-world charm and still accessible, and where they've adapted the rooms for accessibility. But those rooms are in high demand, and there's a lot of competition for those rooms, and so that's why I, I guess you've heard me say now already four times. Uh, do your homework. It's, uh, get those reservations before you get there, because otherwise you're going to get there, and that place is already going to be taken. Okay, you're you're dealing with some small size traditional family-run hotel. They've yes. got two accessible accessible rooms and twenty non-accessible rooms. You make a reservation via email. You tell them you're in a wheelchair or whatever. You want that accessible room. When they say they're going to hold an accessible room for you, can you show up a month later and and not be in one of the other rooms? Will you have the room that you hope to have? Well, I always call before I get there just to make sure that we're on the right track and just to make sure that everything is uh, is exactly the way that we said it was going to be by email. I, I, I take care of uh, my reservations by email. One thing I've found is huge in Europe uh, for people who just want to make things go a little easier. I've got a lot of older travelers or people with health problems and concerns and so on, and they see me waltzing through Europe, and they wonder kind of, is this realistic for me? Clear to me, the most grueling thing about European travel is the heat and the crowds of summer. And boy, if you've got any concerns about your ability to get around, give yourself a huge break, bring an extra sweater or a heavy coat, go off-season, you'll avoid that, uh, just that brutal heat and the crowds that plague every, everywhere south of the Alps all the way through the summer. That's really true. Tell us about the museums. Are they accommodating to people? What should somebody do when they're when they're trying to tackle a big museum? You know, museums are the easiest place in the world to get around in. Uh, the the important part, I think, if you have limited mobility, is to know how much energy you've got, because even if you even if you're the healthiest person in the world, you spend four hours in a museum. I mean, you're dragging afterwards. So uh, museums, are they're the first places to make themselves uh, accessible. I've heard that even if they don't have an elevator for the public, you can use the service elevator if they know you've got a, a mobility problem. You know, that was really true um, 10 years ago, but now you don't even have to worry about that very much. Why? Because, because there's, a, there's an awareness. So they've all got elevators. Yes. That's good. And what if you've got a long line? Can you just boldly uh, send your partner up to the front and say... You know, Grandma's here. We can't wait in this line. Get if us grandma's a there. You can walk with Grandma and go to the front of the line. And in Europe, there that is the expectation. Everybody is very kind and very considerate about that sort of thing. Really? And People won't hoot and holler? Say, get in the back of the line, you old biddy. No, doesn't happen. Really? <laughs> no. I've watched it uh, on numerous occasions, and uh, I'm just always amazed at the kind of... Uh, help that's available to anybody who asks for help. It's kind of a community awareness there, I think, about that. Inside of one week in Paris, I had uh, three different people when I was getting ready to walk across the street. Older folks just grabbed me by the arm and just expect that I would just walk them across the street. Yes. And, you know, and I just waved to them and they just would, and once they got across, never said hello, never, you know, nothing, just just, just the expectation that, you know, oh, this looks like a young fellow. I'll just, I'll just go across with him. That's a beautiful thing. Now, Ken, when you're traveling through Amsterdam, I would think, uh, you know, it's just nothing but cobbles and bridges and steep stairs. Uh, what's, what advice can you give us for taking a tour so you can kind of enjoy the city but not have to walk around? You know, I think one of the most wonderful things you can do if you're in Amsterdam is uh, is, is call up Wallet. It's A B. W-A-L-L-E-T, 
and Ab is the most wonderful tour guide, and he takes people on individual tours, and he doesn't care if you're a slow walker or in a wheelchair or whatever. You know, if, if you want to go for two hours, if you want to go for six hours, he'll take you on a tour and take you to places that are just <laughs> where you would never see those places if you were just unless you were with somebody who really knew the city. And so he'd he take you walking, walking. or, or ro- it's walking or rolling, but he knows walking, where to go. You'd be rolling and he'd be walking. Now, this is a good tip because every city has local guides who are accustomed to this. I was just with a woman in Florence, and she's got a car that can that can that has a special license where she can go everywhere in Florence. Uh, and most of the city is pedestrian only now, but she can drive everywhere, and it's perfect for people with limited mobility. It's going to cost you a couple hundred bucks for the day to have her drive you around, but if you really want to enjoy this town, uh, you can hire a local guide, and then they know uh, how you're not going to get into these impossible corners and these dead ends if, if you have mobility concerns. And, and Ab is even half of that. He's a wonderful tour guide who, who does not charge very much. In your work, Ken, I'm talking with Ken Plattner, my co-author with our book called Easy Access Europe. Ken, in your work, I, I know that there's a lot of groups out there that are designed for supporting and encouraging people who want to explore the world, uh, but they are either are wheelchair-bound or limited mobility. Which ones did you find uh, would be worth uh, paying attention to and taking advantage of? Just about every city you go to, there's going to be a disability organization that if you get to town and you need some help, and and I I think you've heard me say this now three or four times too, this whole thing of asking for help, uh, it's it's something that in the United States that we don't do easily. But I think uh, when you are traveling internationally, I think it's very important to let go of your ego and just ask for the help you need. And what I experience in Europe is that people are so willing to just go above and beyond. Mm-hmm. I mean, you told me about this place in Paris, and I went and I, <laughs> I met this man, uh, Sergio, and, and he actually took the, the door off of his, uh, his, his restaurant to get a person in with a wheelchair. And, you know, and he, was, he was quite happy to talk to me all about that and how he'd, you know, he'd, he'd do anything. And, you know, he's not uncommon. Tell me some of your experiences as you think through your research on the Rhine River in Amsterdam, places that, I mean, Amsterdam, the Rhine River, castles, getting on a boat, uh, cruising the canals. Uh, paint us a picture. What's it like? Uh, encourage us. Well, it's, you know, the best part, I think, is just get on the boat. You, when you get on the boat, you know, it's a lot better to just sort of see it from afar as opposed to if, if you have a lot of disability issues, it's much better just to see it as you're going by than to try to get up close and personal to those old castles. I mean, they just are not that accessible. So be realistic about the Rhine River. The boats are comfortable. The castles, uh, buy the postcard and look at it from the boat. Exactly. How about Amsterdam? You got those? Uh, in, I mean, these stairways are like uh, climbing ladders. I, I I thought it was uh, just some kind of um, <laughs> it was it was Rick Steves' humor is what I think it was is that when we were there to do research in Amsterdam, uh, you had us staying in a place that I counted it was two hundred and eighty six steps to our room. <laughs> wow, and they were probably uh, and, steep and steps so too. It, it just you know I mean that's the norm, and so. Uh, so it, we had to really look in Amsterdam to find places. Did you but find anything? We did. We found great places. And the people there are so fit yeah. that, you know, and everybody riding bicycles, I mean, you have to be really careful. You don't get run over by a bike. But but basically, we found places that were very accessible there. And we didn't find a lot of them, but, but they're there. And they're all, we, we wrote it all down. I would imagine somebody who wants to make sure everything's accessible would need to budget a little more for their travels. I'm not so sure. The the rooms don't cost more. It doesn't cost more for an accessible room than hmm. an unaccessible room. So you just got to have the information and plan ahead. That's it. How, what what's your take on the group called Mobi- Mobility International? Wonderful organization. Uh, those are some hardcore people who um, who are disabled and they are fighting for the rights of people who are disabled and. It's just you can't get those folks down, and I mean th- those people when they travel, uh, they have more energy than I ever thought of having, and uh, I just have the utmost amount of respect for the organization and for what it does around the world, and uh, and and for who how those people conduct themselves and how they you know given their the difficulty of their life, how they have still managed to to to, to suck all the goodness out of life. 
Yeah, well, that that is an inspiration for me. When I meet people who, who it t- takes three times the energy for them to get anywhere that that I have to expend, and and they're over there with a positive spirit, embracing Europe, embracing life, getting the most out of every mile, minute, and dollar they have for their vacation. It really is an inspiration. Hey, I've been talking to Ken Platner. Ken's website is kenplatner.com, K-E-N-P-L-A-T-T-N-E-R.com. You can learn more about that at ricksteves.com in the radio corner. Uh, Ken is the co-author with me of a book called Easy Access Europe. And boy, Ken, I got to say, for on behalf of a lot of people, thanks for your commitment to accessibility and enabling so many Americans uh, an opportunity to, uh, to enjoy Europe, uh, regardless of how well they walk. Thanks, Ken, and happy travels. Okay. We have some fun ways we'd like to encourage your participation in Travel with Rick Steves. When you go to our website at ricksteves.com, the radio section has a place you can submit one of three things we're looking for from our listeners. A hometown brag, an audio postcard, and traveler's haiku. A haiku is a traditional Japanese form of poetry using three lines. Remember, the first one is five syllables long, the second line contains seven syllables, and the third one is five syllables long. There's usually a reference to nature and an element of surprise in a haiku, but we're not purists about the form. We just want to hear how travel has brought out the poet in you. We'll read our favorites on the air. Here are a few haiku from our traveling listeners. Rick, in this haiku, Manuel Fondrich of Seattle describes his view from the window on a recent plane trip to and from Europe. Icebergs far below, I'm thinking of work ahead and sleep left behind. And Judy Moise of Seattle sent us this one, which she titles Love Note to D, a reference to Michelangelo's Statue of David. Cool stone Florentine, armed, watchful, but no one's foe. We can learn from you. We're looking for your submissions of haiku poems about your travels as well as audio postcards of sound effects you encounter and short essays about where you live. Details are at the radio section at ricksteves.com. You can travel with Rick Steves by phone. Give us a call at 877-333-RICK. That's 877-333-7425. Or email your questions to radio at ricksteves.com. For many Americans, there's nothing like taking off on the open road. Coming up, we'll get some ideas on taking the great American road trip from our guest, Jamie Jensen. Plenty of Kodak moments for you and your family as we travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, we're traveling around our beautiful country by car. I have with me Jamie Jensen, who is the author of Road Trip USA. Jamie's been with us several times, and we got Jamie back on board. He's traveled more than 400,000 miles in the last 15 years, and over the uh, years, he's put this 1,000-page guidebook together, laying out the colorful and rewarding road trips you might want to take around our country. And today, we're focusing on the northwest of the United States. Jamie, thank you for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And now, Jamie, you're from California, and you've spent 15 years working on this uh, Road Trip USA guidebook, and it's taken you all over this country. If you're thinking about uh, exploring the Northwest, what highlights come to mind for you? Oh, that's a, a long list. I would love to do books on all these regions. The, the difficult thing with the, my book is keeping it under a thousand pages. I think you could I you know, have ten times that many and still never run out of material. But one of my favorite places that a lot of people I mean, up there you probably know about it, but the rest of the country is Olympic National Park. 
which I think, you know, is kind of unsung compared to your Yellowstones and your Grand Canyons, but it's, you know, it's fabulous. It's got glaciers and mountains and rainforests and coasts and just about everything you could want in the travel place. Great driving up there, too. Wonderful. And, you know, not many people. So you kind of, you can really feel like you've got it to yourself. You're not, you know, bumper to bumper traffic like you sometimes get in the more popular parts. And characteristic towns. I mean, you've got more history on the East Coast, but you go to Port Townsend and it's just got some sort of a, a, a soul and a historic charm, I think. Yeah, and Port Townsend is a wonderful example. I mean, that is the sort of place where I try and send people to. Yeah, you know, yes, we do go to big cities because they're good for airports and rental cars and stuff. But if you really want to get in touch with, you know, some the nice things about these places you're traveling through, towns like Port Townsend. What did you like about Port Townsend, Jamie? Well, architecture. I was going to be an architect when I was going to college and stuff, and so a lot of my interest in how these is in how these places came to be. And Port Townsend is just wonderful for you know, turn of the century architecture and these wonderfully ornate old warehouses and buildings and, you know, Victorians that are now bed and breakfast on the hill. It's just a magical place. And you've got, you know, mountains in every direction and wonderful seafood. And I can't think of a better combination. Now, Americans are famous for having the shortest vacations in the rich world. And I know in your book, you recommend rather than spending a lot of time getting to where you want to focus, you might want to consider flying into the region of your choice, picking up a rental car there and putting a road trip together from that departure point. Is that right? I'd like to encourage people to travel around. The kind of theme of the book is these cross-country mega trips, but at the same time, it's broken down and structured into these smaller bits. So yes, you can fly into Seattle, uh, drive down the coast um, to, and then cut inland to Portland and come back up again, and still okay. following these kind of off the interstates tours. Now, when I'm helping people, Jamie, with their European trips, I always say fly open jaws, fly into one city and out of another, and rent your car open jaws. In in uh, France, there's a hundred different Avis offices. You can pick your car up and drop it any place you like for no extra fee. I imagine that works the same in the United States, doesn't it? Can you pick up a rental car in Seattle and drop it in San Francisco without any extra charge? Ooh, I don't know about that. Uh, you usually, you get your cheapest deals. If you want to get your $150 a week car, you okay. pretty much have to take it back to where you got it. Although, I mean, if, if people are flexible, one thing I've done a couple times is that rental cars need to migrate like people do. Though. They're all in Arizona in the wintertime, hmm. and they move north. So what I have done a couple times is pick up a car in Miami for, you know, like basically for free, and then delivering it to somewhere like Boston or Washington, D.C. So there are ways to work the open jaw. You know, driveaways are the other way to do that. You take someone's car for them if they want to move, you know, from Phoenix to Seattle. You can drive their car. Is that for real? You mean you can do that and they won't charge you? No, they, they'll, you know, they buy your first tank of gas, too. So it, it does work, so keep your eyes open. But if you do these open-jaw rental cars, they often will kind of hit you with a drop fee or something like okay. that, which can be at least a, a week's rental. So really? be careful. Read the fine print before you sign. Now, even at that, I would, I, would, I would figure it's worth a couple hundred bucks to have the luxury of starting at one spot and ending at the other and not have to drive all the way back to Seattle from California or whatever. Yeah, well, you're talking to a man who doesn't mind driving 500 miles for a cheeseburger or something. Okay. So I'm probably not the best judge of what there you go. I'm talking to Jamie Jensen, a man who's driven 400,000 miles to write his book called Road Trip USA. We're talking about road tripping around the Northwest. I notice in your book you actually, uh, it's called Road Trip USA, but you uh, you break out of the States and you go up to Jasper and Banff National Park uh, from, uh, what, from Montana. Tell me about that road. Well, that's a wonderful road. It's a Highway 93 by number, and it goes, if you start in the south, it's Nogales, Mexico, and actually do a little bit of the border towns there, but um, winds its way up, you know, Arizona, um, Nevada, Idaho. It's a wonderful cruise across Idaho, then past Glacier National Park, and you keep on going, like you said, up through Banff and Jasper, and it's um, basically along the Rockies for the, certainly the northern half Look of it, that. and it's pretty splendid almost the entire way. Just looking at the map, it is so evocative. I'm looking at the map inside the cover of Jamie's book, and, and the United, this is a map of the United States like before there were the big interstates, and it's uh, crisscrossed by a number of roads that are the old highways, and now these are the off-the-beaten-path roads because everybody is interested in getting from A to B. They take the, of course, they take the freeway, um, and we've got, uh, uh, it's just like um, there's north-south routes and there's east-west routes, and each one of these is a chapter in Jamie's book, and we've got this chapter two that goes from uh, basically Phoenix all the way up to Banff and Jasper in Alberta. Oh, that looks like a great trip, right up the spine of the Rockies. 
Yeah, and you get I mean, the highlights of, if you like Las Vegas, it goes right through there, but then through some of the loneliest country, going across the Great Basin. And again, you know, the Canadian Rockies, absolutely fabulous scenery there. So there's some, something for everyone along the way. And like you were saying, it's not, these aren't the busy through roads where you get all the trucks and people who need to be somewhere yesterday. These roads are really, for the most part, really pleasures to drive. Yeah, I don't know about you, but the most beautiful scenery I've seen anywhere, even considering the Alps in Europe, is Banff and Jasper National Park up in Canada. Yeah, and it's it's sophisticated, too, in a way, isn't it? They've kind of protected this. A lot of the times you get kind of overdeveloped areas where there's just too many people, you know, going coming together there. But I really like that part of Canada. It's in, you know, I wish that Banff and Jasper were models for other places in the world. All right. Hey, we've got some uh, travelers on the line here, Jamie. Let's go to uh, San Rafael, California, where we have Sally giving us a call. Hi, Sally. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Good. What are you thinking about for your road trips coming up? Well, specifically, we would like to go from Northern California or from San Rafael, which is in Marin County, up through Idaho and into Glacier National Park, which we've never seen and would like to see it. The things that we like to do along the way are play golf, go hiking, go kayaking, and we have this one-year-old puppy that we want to take with us. Is that something that we could do? Jamie? Uh, Yes. I can't help you much with the golf, but um, in terms of... The other parts, going hiking with dogs, seems seems heavenly. And there's some wonderful wide-open places. The, the highway we were talking about, Highway 93, takes you up across some of the most beautiful scenery in Idaho, through the Sawtooth Mountains, up through you know, Sun Valley, where you know Hemingway lived, and all the rich people go to play golf, <laughs> I'm told. It's you know amazing to see these huge snow-capped peaks and then you know these very well-manicured lawns and golf streams parked in front of people's mansions. Sally, have you traveled a lot with your dog? Uh, no, not this particular one. We have with our others. How is it taking a, a long road trip with a dog? Um, well, this particular one I've actually gone to Oregon with, and he's fabulous. He's very calm. He's he's small. Uh-huh. He's about twenty pounds. So, he, and he's he's he just needs to get out every once in a while. Um, but I've not actually stayed in a motel, so I don't know. Are there motels available? Are there B and Bs available that you can take your dog there? Jamie, what kind of problem would that present? I haven't thought about that. Well, I think most motels have rooms where they let people with pets often, you know, take an extra deposit or something. Okay. They're pretty upfront about that. But one thing I would kind of say you should look into is dogs and bears. You're okay. going into bear country, certainly in Glacier, but on up into Banff and Jasper. There's actually bears, you know, all along the highway there. And I know it's an issue Hmm. sometimes so find out you know how okay. welcome dogs are they may not even you know before you get there and get disappointed because your dog's pretty small right sally right <laughs> just appetizer. i wouldn't want him to be bear bait yeah no, no way <laughs> there's uh, grizzlies and things occasionally up there so you know it, the things that used to be okay like i remember going to yellowstone and watching people feed the bears and that they don't let you do that anymore no, for I good know. reason so now, now sally's going to glacier national park i heard that there's not as many glaciers as there used to be no, indeed. I think something like 80% have melted away, but it's still stunning. Whether or not you believe in global warming, you'll certainly believe in the power of uh, geology and erosion and glaciation. Well, in a couple of decades, they're going to have to get a new name for that park, because I read there's going to be, at the rate it's going, there's going to be absolutely no more glaciers there. No, that's what I, I hear as well, but it, it's, it's still stunning, and there's wonderful wildflowers that take the place as the glaciers melt. You know, there's more and more kind of places you can actually explore on land, There's, there are definitely glaciers as you follow up. It's called the Icefields Parkway up between Banff and Jasper, and there are glaciers you can go and wander out on. And I know those have shrunk as well. Hmm. But all right, you well, know, Sally, you better get up there. I think so. All right. they're all gone. Hey, thanks for your call, Sally. And thank you so much. Happy travels. Appreciate it. Bye bye. Bye. And we have Steve on the line from Pacific Palisades in California. Steve, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Nice to talk to you. You too. What's uh, what are you thinking about in the way of road tripping? Well, I wanted to check out the Oregon coast along Scenic Highway 101, driving up from uh, the California border up to Astoria. You're not alone. Yeah, sounds one. Would you probably be doing like a fly drive into Portland or something like that, or? Well, I heard you can fly into Portland and perhaps even take a train out to uh, to Astoria. Well, wouldn't that defeat the purpose? I mean, you live in uh, California. You just hop on uh, Highway 101 and enjoy the drive right up the coast. Yes, it's a beautiful drive, especially at the stretch uh, north of San Francisco and the Carmel uh, area. Yeah, Jamie, what's your advice for the Oregon coast? 
Um, yeah, do it. I just did the. Uh, I was in Carmel yesterday, so uh, I can certainly recommend it if you've got the time to do the California coast in between the cities. is really splendid. But when you get up into Oregon, it's a whole other world. I think it really is lovely, and it's it's different. It's not it, it, as rugged as say Big Sur, but there's lots of the offshore. Um, they call them sea stacks. I think there's wonderful rocks that are just incredibly photogenic, and to watch the waves crashing against them, and there's wonderful old lumbering towns. Um, places along the way that have a lot of history that you don't really get um, necessarily in, the, in California. And there's you know, nice little fishing towns where they've got culture and there have been cafes there for a long time. So it's a wonderful place to travel. And they know how to cater to tourists, too. So, so you get that old-world charm in the towns along the coast. And then Steve is interested in the history of the Lewis and Clark camp there at Astoria. Boy, that was one of the most interesting uh, historic sites I've seen anywhere in the United States. And just last year was the uh, 100th anniversary, right? Yeah, well, this year, I think, I mean, it took them two, two years or so to, to do it. So there's, I think there's a lot going on, and that's um, just south of Astoria. And they actually went on, one of my favorite towns is Cannon Beach, Oregon, which is as far south as they got. And they got to what's called Tillamook Head and looked out over the Pacific and said it was the most splendid vista they had seen. And they had seen just about everything there is to see between the Mississippi and the Pacific. Now, so. people rave about Cannon Beach. What's so good about Cannon Beach? It's neat. It's kind of low-key. I don't know. It, it, I'm sure it's kind of hippie-ish in a certain way, but it's not the kind of over... A lot of the Oregon coast towns um, were sort of amusement park things. And they had railroad ends, and people. they were pretty major-scale tourism in the you know 40s, 50s, whatever, and, and Cannon Beach kind of resisted that. But it's you know within striking distance of Portland. I think it's an hour west of Portland. It's the first place you come to on the coast. I guess a lot of it comes down to demographics, but it's very, very pretty, and they have a wonderful um, sandcastle building competition. Now, Patrick from Wilmington, Delaware, emailed us, and he uh, he recommends when you take the U.S. Route 101 to be sure you get the most out of those redwoods. What are your tips for checking out the redwoods? Yeah, redwoods. I mean, redwoods are California's. They, they they kind of end as soon as you hit the Oregon border. I think they go over maybe 50 miles north of California, but. Um, Redwood National Park is nice. My favorite uh, group of redwoods is actually in um, Humboldt State Park. It didn't. It's the original redwood park, and there are you know huge, wonderful trees. There's the Avenue of the Giants, which is what they call the old U.S. 101. And you hit that when you drive U.S. Uh, 101. Yes, it's, it's a well-signed thru- turnoff. Um, 101 is now more of a freeway through there because it's the main road, but the old road is now called the Avenue of the Giants, and there's wonderful old ticky-tacky tourism along there where they've got, you know, wh- redwood carving. Drives through the tree and that kind of thing. World's largest treehouse things. And, you know, again, there's these wonderful, huge 2,000-year-old, 300-foot-tall trees that just really do kind of put your life into some kind of context. Majestic. Steve, do you have any other uh, questions or ideas? Yeah, I heard there's great whale watching in the Depot Bay and Newport area on the central Oregon coast. Yeah, anywhere along the coast, you're going to see whales if you're there the right time of year. If you do it, I mean, go in the morning and just look for a headland where you've got the right kind of sunlight behind you out there. There's whale watching boats will take you out and say you saw something. But I think those are kind of overrated. I think to just find a wonderful headland somewhere and sit there like Lewis and Clark might have done and, you know, just gaze out to sea and wait to see that little spout on the horizon. But that's a seasonal thing? Yes, they go. They head south in December and head north in March. So you need to read your guidebooks and your uh, preparatory sort of reading to be able to be in the right spot at the right time and, and plan your trip accordingly. I believe. Well, uh, that's always true, but also there's there's things going on anywhere you go. You've got your if you want to see some. They're not exactly whales, but the orcas off. Um, was it Juan de Fuca, the San Juan Islands? You can kind of see, and there's always sea life out there. There's wonderful elephant seals right. on Northern California coast, sea otters, and things. And you get you kind of have to take what's there when you're there. You can't. It's funny you say that, uh, Jamie, because Aaron emailed us from Portland, and he goes, "Oregon Coast Highway 101. It's long and windy, but after a few encounters with whales, sea lions, and the lighthouses, it's well worth it." Yeah, oh, just think of sea lions. As you get over the California border, there's a place called Sea Lion Caves, which if you can hold your nose and get down in there, there's just hundreds of barking sea lions there getting fed by the tourists, and things like that are kind of fun. Steve, thanks for your call. Great to talk to you. Good luck on your travels. Thank you. And Shannon in Seattle emailed us, and uh, let's see, uh, Shannon's driving in eastern Oregon from Bend through the John Day Loop. Uh, Lots of scenery, not much traffic. Uh, John Day fossil beds are fantastic. Have you experienced that, Jamie? Yeah, U.S. 26 or 20, the old, what I call the Oregon Trail, because it, for most of the way, follows what was the Oregon Trail, but that's a wonderful, wide-open country. You feel like you kind of, like you walked into a Clint Eastwood movie or something. John Day Loop. It's wonderful, um, multicolored, eroded 
sandstone hills that have bits of fossils in them. And again, like she was saying, nobody out there. You just feel like you're on your own. And that's beautiful. And there's wonderful little Wild West towns like John Day itself, who I think was connected with the Lewis and Clark. I can't remember. Or one of the Astoria parties. He was some historic figure who got lost and was wandering around the desert for 40 days and kind of lost his mind but came back raving about these wonderful cliffs he'd seen. And everyone thought he was nuts. But then eventually they realized he was telling the truth. All right. Hey, we have Leah on the line from Elsa, Illinois. Thanks for your call. Thank you. What are you thinking? Well, I was thinking about a trip we recently took across Kansas. We had traveled through other states, and Kansas was pretty much our last state to go through, and I was prepared for sort of a ho-hum drive going as fast as we could across Interstate 70, and we decided to stop at the first rest stop right at the beginning of the state coming from the west and picked up some uh, brochures, and they, the uh, state transportation map had all of these wonderful stops. And we just lost ourselves in Kansas and ended up having to spend an extra day just seeing everything there was to see along that one road. Who'd have thunk it? Who would have thought it? Our children had just read um, Little House on the Prairie, so, of course, they just appreciated understanding that we were in the actual place where that had taken place. Well, that's and good. There are wonderful uh, museums about prairie life, and um, there's a wonderful natural history museum at Fort Hayes and, of course, historic Fort Hayes. Um, the Sternberg Museum of Natural History in Hayes um, has wonderful recreations made for children, and they had brought um, historic buildings like an old schoolhouse, and you know that was really uh, fun for the kids to pretend that they were back out on the prairie during hmm. you know the yeah. frontier days. And Leah, the uh, historic and the natural uh, museums actually held your children's interest. Definitely. It's just not it's not all flat prairie land, although the flat prairie land is certainly beautiful. Now, there's a little town right in the middle called Lucas, which is supposed to be the folk art capital of America. Have you ever been to Lucas? I haven't been to Lucas, but I did see the, the largest Van Gogh in the world. That was in uh, Goodland, I believe, right, right at the beginning when you first go into Kansas, and you can't miss this giant painting up on an easel. From You can see it from the highway. The largest Van Gogh. I wouldn't Van be Gogh. surprised. All right. Well, Leah, thanks for your call. You're welcome. All right. Bye-bye. Bye now. I've been talking with Jamie Jensen, author of Road Trip USA. Jamie Jensen, thanks for your very interesting and uh, helpful information on traveling around the USA. Oh, thanks for having me. Happy travels. Turn me loose, set me free Somewhere in the middle of Montana Give me all I've got coming to me Turn me loose and set me free. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks to Dominique Novelozo for reading today's haiku. You can send us your submissions for our 15 Seconds of Fame department at our website, ricksteves.com. Think it's time some guys like me had some fun. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.